This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. Welcome back to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast that looks at how politics works and if it can be done better. In this episode, which we recorded this summer, we visited Sir Frederick Gibbard College in Harlow to meet some of the students and explore what matters to the next generation of voters. And uh, just to reiterate, when we spoke to these students, they were awaiting their exam results, which they will have, of course, received by now. Uh, And we hope they're all enjoying uh, their plans and opportunities that they've got lined up. So why did we want to speak to sixth formers, Armando? I think there's now a whole set of new voters who've grown up entirely on the way news is conducted on social media. I wanted to see how that has affected them, whether the whole idea of party loyalties has completely broken down, whether parties actually make sense to a generation that's used to you know, compiling their own favourites from, a, you know, making their own playlist, as it were, as opposed to just buying and, and uh, someone else's idea of what they would like to, to hear, how that's affected them. And, and there's also lots of discussion about whether first-time voters are actively interested in politics. Now, maybe they're not interested in conventional national party politics, but I detect an enthusiasm and a commitment to lots of single issues. And it's a question of how can they translate that uh, passion for issues into how they approach an election. Mm, That's what I'm fascinated by as well, because everyone says that the political parties between them kind of forget young people because they're pitching towards those voters who reliably vote, who are generally older generations. And that means they drop some of those single issues that young people are sort of supposed to be very passionate about things like climate change and gender rights. So I'd like to see what kind of things would motivate them if they were planning on voting. That's right. And and also, come the next election, n- nobody's yet discussed what the likely turnout is to be, whether there is apathy or mistrust uh, ac- across the spectrum that discourages people from coming out to vote. So I, again, I'd be interested to see what first-time voters are thinking. Armando, it's fun to get out of the studio into this um, lab classroom, isn't it? Quite nostalgic. 
Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I'm glad the chairs aren't as small as I was worried they might be. Um, I remember going back to my old school and realizing that I'd become a giant uh, in the in the interim. Um, I want. To, I thought this would be a good idea to speak to people who are going to be voting for the first time in the section because you know I turned sixty later this year, and um, I've come to not that I'm all that reflective and and whatever, but I looking back, I I kind of suspect that my generation is possibly the worst generation there's ever been <laughs> in that they've handed on <laughs> to the next generation, uh, you know, a climate disaster that we have done nothing or very little to do. My generation is a generation of uh, your Boris Johnsons and your David Camerons and your Ed Davies and so on. What have they managed to achieve and what have they done to politics? So I, I'm kind of, I want to get some kind of uh, taste of, what it is first-time potential voters think about how British politics is working at the moment and also generally, you know, what politics and democracy and voting means to them, what are the issues that engage them, and if they frankly feel um, a lot of resentment towards me and my generation for what we've done to the planet. <laughs> well, I, I'm a different generation from yours, Armando. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, yes, I'm a millennial, you're, so you're I'm excused, 33, yes. much maligned generation ourselves. Um, but we do sort of blame the generations above us for the situation that we've been left in. But I, too, am really curious to hear from the generation below me about how they want things to change, because they feel like a more hopeful generation in many ways um, than mine. You saw the way that the um, climate strikes happened in schools among the sort of Gen Z generation. And I want to see where that energy comes from, as well as some of their ideas for how things can change. Good starting point then, so we better meet them. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure on the seven of you <laughs> to be representatives of your entire generation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're joined by seven students of Sir Frederick Gibbard College. Um, you're all in year 13, I think, and you've all just finished your exams a few weeks ago. And you've kindly taken the time out of your studies to, to have a chat with us. And perhaps you could start by just introducing yourselves and saying uh, what you're going on to do next. Hello, my name's Armandus Delitis, and I plan to go to university and study mathematics to become a mathematician. Hello, I am uh, Matas and I am going to study in America in a month's time to uh, hopefully get a degree in mathematics and economics. Uh, hello, I'm Sienna Baker and I'm hoping to study veterinary medicine. Hi, I'm Teen Abraham and I hopefully want to do biomedical science at Sheffield University. Hi, I'm Alina, and um, I'm looking to study classics at university. Hi, I'm Amelia, and I am going to study history at university. Hi, I'm Poppy, and I'm looking at studying history and politics at university. Thank you all. Now, you're all uh, either 80 now or will be by the time of the next election, if, if we ever get to the next election. Um, so that means you're sort of going to be first-time voters. Will you, will you be voting? Has anyone... Have you, uh, what, what, what do you make of the prospects of uh, the, the offer that's going to be made at the next election. I'm going to be uh, out of the country, so I'm not going to be able well, to vote. There's postal votes. Maybe. Uh, I'll see what I can do. Uh, I'm, I'm always <laughs> up for, you know, participating in elections and having my say and things like that. Starmer versus Sunak, Conservatives Labour. What, what do you make of that choice at, at the moment? Well, the choice between like Starmer and uh, um, Sunak, it's very similar. Like They have the very similar politics and it's like, like, if you even look about 30 years ago, there was a very clear divide between Labour and Conservative. However, now it's just, they've become a, a lot more right-leaning. And even like Labour is more centre, 
Does that frustrate you? What would you like to see yeah, differently? It, it, it kind of does. So I, I would like prefer a more like, and acknowledge, be fair, you cannot have like immediate, like radical change, but to have like some more change. And currently in Parliament, it feels like we're going backwards. So to see like a party that would actually come up and actually speak up for like what the majority of people sh- like would believe in. Uh, would be a lot better rather than like having two parties that are very down to down to the line similar. Is anyone enthusiastic for it, for any of the parties at the moment? Uh, I don't think like I feel like a lot of people will say this. This isn't just like amongst young people, but like just everyone in general. Like there's party like alignment isn't really a big thing anymore. Like nobody nobody's really like die hard Labour or die hard Conservative unless you're like from generations past. But like. I think for young people to be kind of incentivized to be like, yes, I really care about this party in particular. They need to, like Amelia said, they need to, you know, show some like want to change and to like kind of flip the status quo almost so that like politics starts progressing instead of like Amelia said, like regressing. And that's, I think, how you capture the young vote. Um, I agree with Matt as the last time we really saw young people take up a big participation was in Corbyn's campaign where he did the marches and the rallies and lots of young people got behind him and helped him get elected as the next Labour leader. And we saw an incline in their membership. But since then, there's not really been a party that young people have gone towards in like mass numbers. It's kind of been, they lean towards Labour, but that's historically been the trend. But there's not like a large gathering for like one person in particular. So what kind of issues would make you feel enthusiastic about voting for Labour or the Conservatives? What kind of things would they talk about that you think, actually, that really does speak to me? I'd say a challenge to like, I mean, this is something more like close to me, but like a challenge to like corporate control and things like that, because I feel like at the root of a lot of different issues, there do tend to be a lot of like ties to big like companies and things. So for example, like climate change, like it's undeniable that like big companies have like a big part to play in you know, increasing like carbon dioxide and like the atmosphere and things like that. And like, especially with the Conservative Party, there hasn't been like much kind of enthusiasm to change that. I mean, we saw with like Liz Truss, she tried to kind of go backwards on that and like doesn't really reflect well to the people like, because it almost makes politics seem like it's being bought by like companies above politicians. I mean, are you so uh, disillusioned by, you know, what the parties would call their offer? that you might be inclined not to vote or to to vote for a smaller party or uh, how, how enthusiastic are you about the idea of voting in the next election? I think it's not really like publicised, like how to vote and stuff, especially with like the younger generation. Like it's not really taught about enough. Like in America, it's taught in schools, you know, it's through parents and stuff, but it's not very like advocated as much in England. So I think that's a big problem. A lot of young people nowadays, um, I know a lot of my friends themselves, they don't really know much about politics. And I feel like had I not done politics as one of my A-level subjects, I wouldn't have known absolutely anything either. I mean, I had a friend who thought that Mary Berry and uh, Theresa May were the same person. <laughs> and she's going to be voting this year. And right I can't out. imagine what... I think, it, I think Mary just, Berry for PM. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it just goes to show like the lack of um, like, education on politics. Yeah, that's something I've been kind of banging on about because I think a lot of our politicians in Westminster just assume that, uh, I mean, two points that came up, the, the, the politics not being taught in schools and also uh, what was said earlier, the, the idea that uh, 
politicians, uh, the, the idea of parties no longer appeal to voters. It's about individual policies. And I think that the generation in charge at the moment are beginning to lose sight of that and might, there might be a disconnect in the next election. I also feel like um, we've lost a lot of trust for our governments where they've promised stuff in the election campaigns that they have not delivered, where they have set out separate policies and they've not followed them themselves, where they've spread misinformation. And all of that together combined, just it kind of feels pointless to trust in what they promised to deliver. Is there anything in particular where you, where you really felt betrayed? Um, not necessarily betrayed, but I felt like the whole COVID situation was just heavily mishandled. Uh, misinformation was spread tons and tons. Um, a lot of mi- information was also withheld. In the end, they were exposed to have never followed their own gu- guidelines. Yeah. I mean, what did you make of the last two, three years? That's not just the party gate, but, you know, leadership crisis after leadership crisis. We've the, had a lot of prime ministers. Trust, a lot of prime ministers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, you know, bizarre things like we've had 10 education ministers in 10 years. If, if a school had a principal, a principal every year for 10 years, that school would probably be closed, wouldn't it really? And yet somehow, you know, we, I go back to my terribly guilty generation, we are gifting you this mess. What do you, what do you make of that? How can we restore trust in what's going on in, in politics? I'd say in the last few years, of course, well, since like 2010, the Conservatives have been in charge and over the years, like the trust in them in particular has like pretty much disappeared amongst everyone, amongst like conservative voters and amongst everyone else. So I think in the next general election, I think we will see a Labour victory. And I think by not getting rid of conservatives like in the next election, but like by moving to a different party with, whilst the policies might be different, like the image is different, it may help restore that trust like slowly. And at that point, it's kind of up to Starmer and up to Labour themselves like to kind of build upon that because I mean right now I don't know anyone who would be very happy to vote Conservative and everyone's like leaning towards Labour and But how enthusiastic is is that lean towards because I'm detecting among some of you uh, a kind of worry that actually what Starmer might be proposing is so safe and um, appealing to the, to the, the centre and, and un, uh, unradical, as it were, that, that you, I detect I can worry about that among some of you. I think adding on to like what Matas was saying, um, the Conservative Party are going to see a new set of MPs coming through into the top ranks. I think the Conservative Party in the next general election will also look different as to who's standing and representing them. So I think that in some ways can help them restore trust by having new individuals at the face of the party. Oh, well, that's really interesting because I wanted to ask about um, would it make a difference to you all and how you feel about our politics if you saw some different kinds of people in those positions of power? So you say a new generation, perhaps you mean a, a younger generation or perhaps with people with different professional backgrounds or even different um, backgrounds in terms of their heritage. Would that make a difference, do you think? As a mathematician, I'm all about results. <laughs> so for me, it's just to promise something and then to be able to deliver it to inform the people of what's going on, keep them up to date and just deliver what they said they were going to do. I think a lot of people do vote based on balance now where they look at who's the leader of the party and the policies. It's not necessarily also 
like their local MP and who's representing them on a local level. We don't necessarily look at the name of the MP or what they stand for as an individual. We'll look at the party in the bigger picture. So I think it comes from the head of the party, how they can change the result and what people think towards them. And that's been true for a while. I mean, I think most people vote that that way. You know, there's an undue, even though we say it's not a presidential system, it's a parliamentary system. We put a lot of prominence on whoever's leading that party because ultimately they're going to be the one taking the, the big decisions. One thing I'm interested in though is, is how you get your news and your information about the politics and the parties and the personalities. Where Do you feel you're getting the full picture or how do you explore the media and get, get through it? There's plenty of nonsense online. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, you're not referring to us. <laughs> of course not. Um, but also recently at least it feels like it's hard to even trust the mainstream media so nowadays you'll receive a bit of information and you'll really have to just pick it apart do your research and um, try to come to understand to what you're being told so how do you do that how do you do the research well personally i will look up what they're saying because you know sometimes they'll say something completely outlandish and i'll look up what they're saying i'll make my own opinions rather than just believing what something online says very important to take everything let, that you hear with a, a grain of salt um, and definitely look at like reports from all sides of the political spectrum. I think that's how you obviously find the best like answer by hearing the most amount of like information from different sources, because it would be pretty naive to just trust like one side of the argument over the other and really kind of like discount like any other points made against it. And um, I think that's kind of like what's needed to like have that information more available to everyone. So where do you go? What do you do? If there's a news story, what's the first thing you look at? I actually look at TikTok and I know a lot of people say, oh, it's bad because, you know, spread lies and things like that. But there's so many different sources that you kind of take it all in and you can like make up your own mind. And there's also like newspapers that have their own TikTok accounts and post things on there. So I think that's quite important. And you find you're able to, you feel confident you're able to kind of sort the the fake from the the the, the non-fake. Yeah, I think it's a case of just looking at different um, like profiles and to see what each one is saying. And then you'll just kind of like make out what is the good stuff and what's like nonsense. Does anyone else do anything similarly or differently? I get most of my political knowledge, to be honest, from my parents. So it yeah. could be bias and <laughs> they could go out and handpick whichever yeah. stories they would like to believe. But I just, most of my political knowledge is from what I hear them speak of. So. And in terms of coverage, is there any coverage in, uh, on the television or news outlets that you would turn to? Uh, I'd say BBC, probably. That's the kind of, because they're kind of required to maintain neutrality, even though some people have argued like they haven't in the past like I think they're a good like starting point and then from there like do your own research you know look into different sources and things like that and how do you feel about you know the GB News now has programs fronted by MPs and politicians and more and more politicians are deciding to do their own media as it were and bypass things like the BBC and so on are you aware of that are you are you able to spot when they're avoiding the question and when they're opening themselves to scrutiny. When we did our work experience with New Statesmen, we got to go and watch PMQs and it's interesting to see how they avoid the questions because often 
they'll answer a question by talking around the topic or so when it was Partygate and Johnson would talk around the topic, but he wouldn't directly answer some of the questions Starmer posed to him. And so I think politicians have got their own way of getting around questions without being called out because they can talk around the topic. But I think they face like harsh scrutiny because they don't have to answer it directly because of the environment they're in. As you watch more and more PMQs, for example, and these uh, like new channels and things like that, you'll learn to like spot how they try to avoid the question, like Poppy said. Um, I think that the danger from like these kind of insular sort of like networks is that it can often create like echo chambers for like the viewers. So people would, you know, just stick to that one channel and only listen to like what their MP says because they they think like that they can be like 100% trusted. Not to say like they don't tell the truth like ever, but like um, it's very important to, you know, also look at other other places, other sources of information, because then you run the risk of, you know, kind of falling into like a trap where like no progress will be made, like you won't be learning anything. And that reminds me very much, one of my earliest jobs as a radio producer was I had to do this comedy show called The News Quiz, which is still still on. But And I was required to set the questions. I was required to read every newspaper every day. And, and doing that, you suddenly realize that no newspaper gives you the complete set of facts on a subject. Each newspaper, whether left, right or center, very subtly slants it in a certain way and excludes certain facts if it doesn't quite fit the argument they want to make. And that's left me (laughs) slightly scarred in that I can't really read any newspaper now without thinking, yes, but I'm sure there's more to this. And how much do you talk about politics with each other? You know, uh, is is it something that is a regular part of conversation in your conversations with each other or is it is it not something that you generally chat about? I think doing politics A-level, it kind of, you're forced to talk about it with one another. So when there was Liz Trust and then you had Johnson resigning and you had Sunak then, and then you had the cabinet resignations, I think because it's such a big story, you end up talking about it as part of the class, but it kind of touched upon the point earlier that if you're not taught about it in school, you don't talk about it because... There's no reason to. So young people don't have as much knowledge about politics. You can only really talk about it if you've been taught about it and understand it yourself. Branching on from Poppy's point, I think growing up in a family who hasn't ever voted doesn't really focus on politics. It makes it hard for you to vote and look into things such as that. So if I want to find any information about politics, I have to seek it out myself and like take it with a pinch of salt, like Matt has said, because it's so like, hidden and kind of manipulated in an opinion. So I have to kind of filter it out, find my own source, find my opinion in what I believe in with the politics. And is that what you what you do? Yeah, that's what I do when I find something I'm interested in and I actually want to find out about it. Because talking to my family, it's very hard to actually get anything from them. Would that be like individual issues or uh, are you looking at the parties or what, what is it that interests you? What, what are the fields that you start kind of exploring? I find it's like individual issues, so like global warming, issues with like the LGBTQ and everything that interests me because I know it's something young people typically focus on and do struggle with. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, the suggestion that more politics should be taught in schools. What would, what would you like to see? I think it's just the basics, like what a manifesto actually is. If you ask the ordinary young person, some of them won't know what that even is. They won't know where to find it um, and even how to register to vote and where their nearest voting station is. A lot of people our age won't know that. So I think it's just teaching the basics first so that people can even get like their foot into politics. Uh, kind of similar to what Poppy said. Um, the way that like subjects like maths and uh, English are taught, I think politics should be like taught just the same. I mean, there's classes like citizenship, uh, but they're not really like widespread amongst every school. Um, and like me personally, I didn't have the chance to take politics until A level. So I went my whole secondary school and like primary school even, um, like without knowing like anything about politics, without knowing how to vote, without knowing what a manifesto is, without any of that knowledge and I kind of came into the classroom and I was pretty much starting at ground zero like it was um it made it obviously the A level a bit more difficult but it's not just that it's more like it has a knock-on effect to the people that don't do it because they won't know how to you know handle like an election who to vote for you know what to what sources to listen to things like that. What about the idea that has been floated recently? Um, I don't know if they're taking it up but it was floated that that uh, voting should be open to 16 and 17 year olds. I think perhaps if we were educated properly on the issue, then maybe that could be something that could be opened up. But right now with our current general lack of political knowledge, I don't think that would be the best idea. I think that's right. I think a lot of politicians just assume you know what they're talking about. Like, you know, what does growth mean? What is, what's a manifesto? What's a, uh, and, and how parties work and, and how the electoral system works. And, and my worry has always been that they've, they've discounted the, the youth vote. They've either taken it for granted or else they've discounted it and concentrating on, on the older vote because older people tend to go out and vote. Um, and, and therefore, we're having a whole generation slightly disconnected from what is being discussed and the decisions being made. And then there's a vacuum and where there's a vacuum, you know, horrible things can start happening. I definitely agree with that. I feel like there's no urgency to get young people on board from the government and just generally uh, older people. I feel like there's a very severe lack of urgency there. Yes. And if you were living in Wales or Scotland, you would be allowed to vote in those elections for the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly. Yeah, and, um, the, and the independence, the independence referendum And the Scotland. independence referendum also opened up to 16 and 17 year olds. So it does feel like there is a bit of a disconnect. Um, people your age or, you know, the, the ages that you were recently are being left behind from the general elections, which, which are the big elections. If young people had more of a say in our politics, like we're talking about now, you know, if you got votes at a younger age, if you had more of a say over what the parties were offering, how could it change the country for the better? Why, why do you think we, we need young people to be involved more in the process? Uh, I definitely think we see the rise of third parties more. They definitely get more uh, like popularity. They'd, uh, we definitely hear like 
parties like the Green Party on the news a lot more because younger people, instead of voting with a party and a general set of ideas, we're definitely more like, this is a generalization, but we're definitely more single issue focused. So I think the big one like nowadays is climate change. And if we saw like votes at 16, for example, um, we definitely see like the Green Party getting more seats than they actually do. I mean, right now they have like one seat, I believe. And, um, and she's stepping down yeah. at the next election. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And I think it would give like conservatism labor an opportunity to like address those issues that younger people care about more. And I think we'd see probably a positive change in the country as a whole. But of course, opening up, making it more proportional, you would get single issue parties like the Green Party, Big Brother, but also, you know, on the right, UKIP and so on. So that's something that uh, would be a, a consequence of, 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 that, of that kind of change. Is that something that you would be able to deal with, accept, assume that's part of the process? Because a lot of UKIP was, a lot of their popularity was centered around Brexit. Um, and now that Brexit has come and gone, they've, you know, lost their popularity. I think it would be very easy to deal with and like spot out the the radical from the kind of, I don't know, um, well-meaning sort of. Um, because the Green Party, I think the climate change is, is an issue that's going to extend far beyond our generation even. And Brexit, obviously like long-term effects will be seen, but they are like more uh, kind of contained. You mentioned single issues being important to you rather than particular loyalties to certain parties. And you, a lot of you have mentioned climate change. I wonder if there are any other single issues where you think this is something that's really important for me. And if I ever go and vote, I'm going to be thinking that's the thing that I want to vote on. What, what else comes up for you? What are your priorities? I mean, although we're almost at the end of education, education's always been a big one for me. Both my parents have worked in it and seeing the impact COVID had on teachers themselves and kind of their work lives and how they became consumed, I think there needs to be more done in education and I think there needs to be more support. Teachers are often expected to do a lot for very little in return and I've seen that in my own home. And it does, it takes over their lives and their weekends and people say they do the school day and they get the school holidays, but that's not the case. And what about the, the kind of conversation that's going on in higher education at the moment, which is um, being able to discuss uh, people with alternative views to your own and, and, and allowing people who may have unpopular things to say on subjects to allow them the opportunity to express themselves and then uh, be debated and be challenged. As, as we grow older and as we, we're all entering like higher education, I think it is important to keep some of those views in mind, even though like you don't agree with them. Um, because a part of the learning process is, you know, like debating and discussing different points of view. Um, and I think it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right to, just because their their views are now unpopular amongst our generation to completely like throw them away and not listen to them at all. Because by doing that, like we're kind of contributing to that divide as well. Um, because if we we completely denounce everything that this one person says and their views align with like the older generation, then the divide just, you know, grows bigger. And like at that point, it's less about like the political system and it's down to us as, you know, people to kind of fix that. And older generations, particularly um, politicians of certain uh, persuasions, often argue that um, younger people in this country are becoming more intolerant to views that they don't agree with and they worry about free speech. 
And I wonder if you can give us an insight into what happens when you disagree with your friends or, or people in your families about issues that you, you don't agree over. Is, do you feel in, that your generation is intolerant or do you feel that you can debate sort of uh, in a civil way? Um, I feel that kind of depends on age. Um, so I would say I'm slightly right-leaning. I woke up in a well, my father is very, very right-leaning, although I've tried to talk him out of it because I've, <laughs> it was very extreme to the point where... But um, understanding both points of view, uh, where schools are heavily left-leaning, in my opinion, or middle-left, and at home, where I had a very heavy right upbringing, you realize that both opinions, no matter how hateful they could seem at any point, come from some sort of place of compassion. Um, for example, the... Apart from obviously the very heavy right uh, Nazism and all that, um, the right believe in protecting children and individuality, and then the left are very compassionate towards okay. the minorities. Um, and you know, both of them come from a point of compassion, but we tend to rip each other's throats apart about certain things. And um, so, when I was growing up um, in my right-leaning family, I held a lot of right-leaning views. And in secondary school, I would get absolutely slaughtered on some of those things. <laughs> and uh, I would get called some of the worst names ever. But, you know, when you pay attention to both sides, now I would say I'm quite middle with a right lean slightly. Um, but yeah, you have to, I just understand from seeing both points of view that both points come from compassion. And it's very important to talk it out, understand where these views originate from and understand that we're not, nobody's trying to be hateful to the other person. I also just raised the question, actually, what, what do, do the terms left and right mean to you what they might have meant to someone of my generation? Or, or is it a little bit more fuzzy and fluid now, really, because it's more to do with single issues rather than... Yeah. Um, I think nowadays they're both kind of right wing and left wing have become like kind of buzzwords to discredit one side or the other. Um, and it's kind of, it's no longer about like, actual political like views or leanings and it's more about you know like for example if i was to say if i was to advocate for lgbt rights people would maybe call me left like left-wing radical or like anything like that and i don't think it's a productive way at all i think they're kind of older terms and i think nowadays i think they have like less of a place in politics because i mean obviously it has become a bit more blurred and i think it to label things as right-wing or left-wing is a bit like almost archaic in a way. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about really is like something you've all gone through, which is is the whole COVID lockdown, the effect on education and how has that uh, affected you and your perception of 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 learning and, and of the future really? This wasn't necessarily uh, learning related, but it was COVID related. Something that a part of my mistrust and betrayal came from was the fact that I knew of somebody who was disabled and when they heard about COVID and all the news about it, they were absolutely terrified. They would clean their house excessively. They would order uh, shopping like groceries and they'd wipe it all down front to back with um, wet wipes and stuff. And after you see that and then you see uh, Boris Johnson and the, um, the parties, the leaked WhatsApp messages, all of that, you just feel like what are they doing to these people? I can't believe they're scaring them that much to the point where they're so obsessively cleaning, so terrified of getting ill. Meanwhile, the government seems to have no 
don't know, they don't seem to care whatsoever. Personally, I struggled with my mental health during it and I developed a problem with food and eating. Um, and it was hard because whilst you had the support from school, they weren't there physically, so they couldn't intervene. And typically they'd give you counselling sessions or one-on-one -on -one support. But I think it was more challenging to get that support during lockdown because you were isolated a lot of the time by yourself. I have a, a little bit of a different opinion to most, but I, I'd say that COVID had a, a net positive on me. Um, I feel like because we were all like constrained to our homes and things like that, life went by a lot faster and it felt like the, the regular ups and downs, they were felt more like extremely and like in a short period of time. But overall, I think that in terms of learning, it benefited me more because I don't think many people would say this, but the grades that we did get were, um, were most likely not going to be the grades that we would have gotten if we uh, took exams. And I think everybody could agree uh, when I say this. What do people and, think? No one disagree or you were gonna say something as well. Oh yeah. Um so to do with learning, I well where the government was saying that oh don't go outside, it's basically dangerous. I was very like just confined to my room. I liked online learning. I actually wanted to do like an online college where it was just purely everything was online, didn't have to go out. But at the same time, online learning, I think it was a lot better for me, but then it wasn't because I do prefer one-to-one -one kind of learning like in person, but it also helped my confidence because I was able to ask questions online, whereas like, I wouldn't do that in lesson. Once we all did come back to school, uh, everybody was a little bit more distant. I mean, there was excitement within like, I'd say the first week or so, uh, you know, to be back, to be seeing each other again. But in the long term, I think it has definitely impacted like our ability to, you know, connect with other people almost because we were locked away. Well, not locked away, but like, sorry, let me rephrase. Um, it was called but, a lockdown. So yeah, yeah. We, so we were locked down for away. a while yeah. and um, it did, uh, especially in the classroom, like the people that we talked to in the classrooms, we wouldn't talk to outside of school because of um, the lockdown. And when we came back, I think we just, no I just noticed personally the different, uh, the distance between all of us and it kind of made like, um, you know, talking to people just like generally more difficult and things like Lockdown actually kind of changed my opinion on school as a whole, because prior to lockdown, nobody really liked school, right? Going, going to school. Nobody really liked <laughs> You can see liked your it. teacher wincing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, when I, when during the lockdown, when we had online learning, I felt myself just way more lazy than usual. You know, you'd have the comfort of your own house, comfort of your own clothes. And I don't know, I wasn't as productive as I could have been. And I just realized the importance of going to school, dressing up formally, you know, getting all your work in order. It just changed my opinion on the importance of actually going outside, going to an institution, sitting down uh, with a teacher in front of a whiteboard, it changed my whole opinion. And as a result, A-levels were a lot more fun for me. And I actually, I felt like it felt significant to miss a day of school. Um, I think we've come to the end, unless yeah, anyone has anything. We do have we do have a say. few politicians who do listen to our podcast. Yes. So if there's anything that you want to say to them, then do get that in in the last yes. few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your chance to yeah. pass something on to Keir Starmer yeah. or to Wes Streeting or Ed Davey or or Suella Braverman. <laughs> listen to your children. If you have children, um, I think they will provide a lot of. Uh, insight into what everybody, well, all of my generation at least think.
and don't discount the youth because we're the next generation. So we might just be the ones that take your place. So what did you make of that? First of all, I was really cheered because they all seemed actually quite smart about how they want to access information, how they get their news. It's interesting that although they say they get a lot of it from TikTok, they're aware of the shortcomings and the pitfalls of that. Um, They're aware that you have to dig around a little bit further just to make sure that what you're getting is accurate as opposed to just a random opinion. That's interesting. What is concerning, obviously, is the general mistrust of Mm. the political class, I suppose, and how we do that. I mean, it was interesting talking about how little politics itself or how, you know, constitutional politics and how Westminster and national and local politics is actually taught in schools. I suppose the British equivalent of, they call it civics in America. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought what I thought was interesting is that they didn't feel like there was a very clear difference between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, Labour and Conservative. And I thought that actually is less of a young people view and more of a general view that I hear a lot when I go around the country reporting and hearing from voters of all ages. So it's interesting, perhaps, that that disillusionment, you know, isn't unique to younger people. They're not sort of uniquely disengaged from politics. It's that this is the reality that has made people. I mean, it's an think assessment, isn't politics. it? I mean, I'd be interested. If, if it had been two or three years earlier, yeah. whether they noticed a difference between, you know, Corbyn and Johnson yeah. <laughs> or May and Miliband and, and so on. So that's, that's interesting. And I think, you know, I was cheered by the fact that I think there is a political astuteness around, uh, but it's also, um, there's also frustration, frustration is how they apply that that urge to get involved whether they can apply it to getting involved in national <laughs> democracy. Um, my point that I keep on making is if we don't, you know, if we don't get out and vote, then, you know, the worst can happen if we let it. Yeah, exactly. And it was a bit sad because I think climate change was the issue that they raised the most, wasn't mm-hmm. it, in terms of what would motivate them to vote or what they were interested in politically. And you've seen Labour sort of U-turn or water down some of its um, commitment Commits, to that £28 yeah. billion investment. And then, of course, on the Conservative side, even more extreme, rowing back on those targets for net zero as well. So, you know, you're looking at this as one of those young people who weren't uniquely Labour, were they? Yeah. Um, and you're looking at both of the main parties that might be in power when the general election rolls around and you think, who is actually representing the one issue that means so much to me. And also, I think it's sad to hear that the prospect of a place at university yeah. has to be, uh, has to also factor in cost implications and whether people can afford it. The idea that more and more students are now commuting to university and their college places from home and mm-hmm. feel that they can't make that. You know, I grew up at a time, well, A, as I think I said to them, you know, I was the last of the generation where it was free from yeah. start to finish, so it didn't come out of university with an enormous bill to pay off. But um, that idea that you go, it's a way of leaving home and experiencing life and other people and other uh, voices and, and opinions that you wouldn't have at home. I mean, there's now a change of priority, which is 
it's a place to go to get your degree or to get your qualification and then move on. Yes. And that's very much encouraged by things like Rishi Sunak trying to crack down on Mickey Mouse degrees and things, making university look like a transactional experience yes. rather than something that's sort of a, a moment in life where you're experiencing something you haven't done before. And I, I yeah. felt, I did feel a little bit sad for them that their considerations had to be financial and had to be employment related, even though, of course, you know, it's a pragmatic thing to think, but it felt like they were sort of older beyond their years. I well, yes, I, I was about to say, it, it's not that they felt sad. It's that they felt, oh, that's what university and college is about. It's about that transaction now. Yeah. Um, and then and then what you do afterwards. Um, and I think that is a, a quite a significant cultural shift over the last four or five years. Mm. And they've worked so hard to get those places. And, you know, many of them wouldn't necessarily be from backgrounds where they might get into some of those those um, institutions that they got into. So, you know, you feel so proud of them, but at the same time, concerned about what the cost of living crisis means for, for younger people. Mm. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a bonus series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. Join us for the next episode of Westminster Reimagined when Armando and I ask, is democracy under threat? If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. This episode was produced by Chris Stone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.